If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Exodus. We'll be in chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. There's a ministry. We're walking through the season of Lent. And Lent, historically, is a time that Christians have set aside to consider what it is we're celebrating in Easter, and Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. It's a time that they've set aside to prepare their hearts for the weight of what we commemorate in uh, that season. And so the way that God prepared his people historically, the people of Israel, was by giving them uh, the Old Testament specifically uh, to prepare their hearts for the incarnation, the work of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so we as a ministry are walking together through the Old Testament, um, almost like a stone skipping across a pond, because we're certainly not covering the whole thing, but we're just hitting these central points uh, that point our hearts towards Christ and point towards what Jesus would accomplish. I had a, an Old Testament professor at USF who said that Christians fundamentally reread the Old Testament in light of Jesus and what they believe that he accomplished. And I actually think that there's probably some truth to that. Uh, he, he meant that as something disparaging. He meant that as something of an insult. But the reality is that once you've short, sort of seen where the story goes, once you've seen how it ends, well, then when you go back and look at the first and the second act, you do, in fact, view it differently. You have this sense of how all of the threads that seemed like loose ends will tie together in the culmination of the story. So among people who, who are super nerdy and into philosophy of film, they talk about the different ways that you can view a story, the different ways you can encounter a narrative structure. Uh, so that, that might be a movie, uh, that might be a play, that might be a book or a, a podcast that's telling a story, whatever it is. And so they talk about something called prospective viewing. When you view something prospectively, you're experiencing it for the first time, not knowing how it's going to end. It's like watching a movie and the first time through, you're surprised by the plot twist because you didn't know that that was coming. Uh, you're surprised by the decisions that characters make. You're, you're a little confused as to why certain things play out the way that they do. And so we originally view things prospectively, but once you come to the end, now you look back on it retrospectively. You know how what Susie or Johnny did in Act 1 affects what happens to Susie and Johnny in the final act. And so in looking back, you see these threads coming together. And sort of like the little neuralizer thing for Men in Black, you're never going to unsee the ending. And it's going to affect the way that you see the coherent whole of the story. And I think in many ways this helps us when we come to Scripture. Because once you and I have seen Christ, the one to whom the Old Testament has always pointed, what is ambiguous or misunderstood or confusing begins to come into sharper focus when we look to the person of Jesus. So there's five central events that take place in the Old Testament, roughly. And most of the Old Testament is unpacking the significance of those events. There is the creation and fall of man that we talked about last week. There is God calling Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel, making this promise that you will be a father of many nations, and in you all of the families of the world will be blessed. There's God delivering the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt in the Passover and the Exodus. There is the dynasty of Solomon, and David, and Saul. And then there is that dynasty being destroyed and scattered in the Babylonian exile. 
These are sort of the five things around which the Old Testament orients itself. But of those things, the one that casts the greatest shadow is the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, the Passover and the Exodus. And so that's where we're going to spend our time this evening as we walk through Lent. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Let me give you a sense of what's going on here historically what's already taken place before we jump into the passage. So Israel has been enslaved in the nation of Egypt for about 400 years. And during that time, they have uh, expanded and proliferated to the point that Egyptian leadership is worried that if they decide to turn on the slave drivers, they might actually win. And so Pharaoh commands that all the firstborn sons of Israel be put to death, uh, and then he he commands that their their labor would be increased so that they're literally being crushed under the weight of the Egyptian yoke so that they won't have the strength to rise up. 400 years before, God had made a promise to Abraham, the father of this nation, saying, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the grains of sand across the shore and the stars and the sky. And this promise is ringing in the ears of the people of Israel as the slave driver's whip splits their back. And so they find themselves in a place that we often find ourselves, which is that God's promises feel untrue, or at least desperately out of touch with reality. Because I'm sure for them that did not feel like a promise fulfilled. And it certainly didn't feel like they were blessing the nations of the world as the Egyptian nation destroyed them. And it's in the midst of this situation that God chooses a man named Moses, raised in the Egyptian courts, educated in Egypt, currently hiding in the desert for murder because he doesn't want to be punished for it. And he meets with Moses and says, I'm about to make good on my promise to Abraham. I need you to go back Go back to Egypt, the place that you're running from. I need you to go into the courts that you were raised in, and I need you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so Moses does. He goes back to Egypt. He goes back into the courts that he had grown up in as a child. He goes to a Pharaoh that he might have been raised with, uh, might have been a childhood friend. And he says, the God of Israel has told me to tell you to let his people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? I don't know your God, and I won't let your people go. Now, you've probably, if you're in the roughly 18 to 28 demographic that this ministry is for, you grew up during the era of like the Prince of Egypt movie. Great film. Actually has a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, I checked, um, which is higher than Beauty and the Beast, so take that, Disney. Um, Or maybe you remember watching the uh, old Charlton Heston movie. I think it's called The Ten Commandments. uh, And it sort of follows this storyline. The temptation is to think that what happens in the first half of the book of Exodus is just God flexing, just doing some cool things. I'm going to make it rain fire. I'm going to turn your river to blood. Check this out. But here's what you need to understand. The whole 12 chapters of the book of Exodus, the whole first 12 chapters are God answering Pharaoh's question. Pharaoh says, I don't know who your God is and I won't do what he says. And Yahweh says, you're going to learn today. (laughs) And proceeds 
to hurl plague after plague after plague against the nation of Egypt. And that's not even just God doing random, interesting things. Actually, each of the plagues of Egypt is a direct assault against something that the Egyptians worshipped as a god. So the, the Nile turns to blood. The Egyptians worshipped the god Apsis and Isis and Osiris as the gods of the Nile. Later on, God stretches out his hand and he kills all the livestock of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians had worshipped the god Hathor, who was the cattle god. He reaches out his hand again. He strikes the Egyptians with boils and they cry out to their gods Seket and Sunhu, both the gods of health, and nothing happens. So don't miss this. Exodus 1 through 12 is the one true God's war against idols. It is a war against idolatry. It is God one by one smashing down the false gods that the Egyptians had placed their hope in and saying, you will know that I am the Lord. You will know who I am by the time I'm done with this. Perhaps you've experienced that in your own life, and it certainly doesn't feel merciful, but I can assure you that it is indeed merciful. When you've placed all of your hope in your bank accounts, all of your hope in particular friendships or relationships, all of your hope in your level of intelligence or your ability to provide for yourself, perhaps you've experienced the Lord stretching out his hand and smashing down your idols and reminding you that he is the only one who can offer the things that these idols have promised. So, the book of Exodus from beginning to end, is the story of a God who is relentless in his pursuit of his people and unwilling to be second to any man-made God or spiritual power. And the Passover, this final plague that we'll be reading about tonight, is the culmination of his relentless pursuit. So let me read our text for the evening. Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you a beginning of months, the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood. They shall put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, 
God begins this final plague by making this statement to Moses and Aaron. This month shall be for you the beginning of months, the first month of the year. I would venture to say all of us have particular events that we have lived through that become hinges upon which our lives sort of turn. These particular experiences that split our life in two, and to where we can't really rightly say that we're the same afterwards. There is life before this happened, and there is life after. And so for some of us, that's positive. You meet the person that you'll spend the rest of your life with. You finally get married, the birth of a child, uh, the development of a friendship that will last a lifetime, finally graduating college after ever. But for some of us, it's negative. It's the death of a loved one. It's the loss of a child. It's the disillusion of a relationship that we thought would go with us a long way. Regardless, we all have these events in our lives that split our lives in half and things become from now on. And God says to Israel, what I am about to do on this evening, this final plague, is going to be so significant for you that you will begin your year remembering it. It is so significant to you and your national identity that it will cast a shadow over the history of your people that you will never forget and you will never escape. Your very calendar will start by remembering what I am about to do for you on this evening. So what is it that God does? Well, he says in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all of the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment against. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, when Israel heard this, they probably would have been shocked because at least for several of these plagues that had already taken place, Israel had actually been spared. When God killed the livestock of Egypt, Israel's livestock hadn't died. When God had stretched out his hand against the Egyptians, Israel was left out of the calamity. And so for Israel, they're probably thinking, Yahweh is team Israel, not team Egypt. So whatever you do, we should be fine in the midst of. And yet God says, you won't be fine. You won't be okay unless you do what I ask you to do. And so, they're left with this question. It's the question that we should ask. Why is Israel in danger here, as opposed to just the Egyptians? Why is all this business about lambs dying and blood being smeared on doorposts? Why is it necessary in the first place? Well, it's necessary because when you look at verse 12, there's something different about this plague than the other plagues. Verse 12, it says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Every other plague, God has said, Moses, stretch out your hand. God has said, I will stretch out my hand and accomplish this. But now, in some new way, God himself is coming to Egypt. And no son of Adam has the right to stand before him, whether they are Egyptian or Israeli. Nobody can stand before the presence of the Lord without judgment. And he says, I am now passing through Egypt. He makes this clear later on to Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses says, Lord, I want to see your glory. And he says, you can't be in my presence. It will kill you. And so, 
at the heart of this final plague is a question that God's Passover answers. The question is this, who can stand on their own before a holy God? And the answer of the Exodus and the Passover is absolutely nobody. Not even his own people can stand before him in the glory of his holiness. And this would have been particularly difficult to swallow for the Pharaoh. Because at this point in Egyptian history and for centuries beyond that, pharaohs believed that they were gods. So when Pharaoh says, I don't know your God, in the back of it he's saying, I'm a god and I don't know your God. Which makes the son of Pharaoh the son of a god, soon to be a god himself. And so don't miss what's happening here in the Exodus. The Lord is stretching out his hand. He is entering into this city and he is saying to Pharaoh, you are not God You cannot protect your people, and you cannot stand in my presence without judgment. But I am the Lord, and I will deliver my people. And I wonder how many of us need to be reminded of that, not in some horrific, death-dealing sort of a way, but how many of us live our lives as though we are entirely autonomous, the masters of our own destiny, the captains of our own ship, The Lord's been merciful to some of you, and some of you he has yet to demonstrate his mercy, but rest assured that there will come a day for each of us where like the Pharaoh, he smashes us down, and he says, you are not God. So Israel is in danger in the final plague because Israel is sinful just like everyone else. So God makes this provision for Israel. He gives them these instructions that probably seem strange to us, definitely seem strange to us. He says to Israel in the beginning of this chapter that you need to take a spotless lamb and you need to bring it into your home and if you all don't have enough money for lambs, you need to share. You bring it into your home for 14 days and after 14 days, kill the lamb, take the blood, spread it across the doorpost. And when I see it, I will pass over you. The judgment that comes with my presence will not be dealt to you. It does seem strange to us, but I think that almost every single aspect of this commandment points us so deeply to Christ. God says to Israel, take a perfect, spotless lamb. But I can tell you that there is no farmer in Israel who is patting himself on the back for his lamb breeding skills at this point. None of them are saying, thank goodness I figured out how to breed the perfect spotless lamb. Here's why. Because only a few chapters before, God had stretched out his hand and he had killed all of the livestock in Egypt and he had spared the people of Israel's livestock. The only reason that anyone in Israel has a lamb to protect them from the judgment of God is because God has provided it for them. No one in Israel has the grounds to boast. God has done the work himself for them. Years ago, a bishop named Augustine got into a heated dialogue with another church leader named Pelagius. And at the heart of this debate was Pelagius arguing God isn't fair. Because God wants of us things we can't do and then punishes us for not doing the things that he's asked of us. 
We can't ever live perfectly holy lives, yet God calls us to be holy, and so God is asking of us something that is unfair. Augustine responded at length. But the the heart of his response to Pelagius was a prayer that he uttered in his confessions. And he prayed to the Lord, God, command what you will and grant what you command. Uh, To update that into modern English, God, ask me to do whatever you want. Just give me the strength to do it. God asks Israel for a spotless lamb, and God provides the lamb for Israel. Is it any wonder that 1,500 years later, John the Baptist, cousin of a young carpenter from Nazareth, looks to his cousin Jesus and says, here is the Lamb of God that he has provided to take away the sins of the world. But there's more than just taking the Lamb in and killing the Lamb and eating it. The people of Israel are told that they are to take the blood of the lamb and to spread it across the doorpost. I mentioned this earlier, but we mostly grew up during the era of the Prince of Egypt movie. I didn't know this until recently. It was produced by Steven Spielberg, so it was not just like a corny Hallmark Christian movie. It had famous people attached to it. And when the script was produced, there was a controversy that erupted among the people involved in producing the movie. Because the original script, there's a monologue from Moses, and it's meant to summarize the chapter that we're reading. And in it, Moses says, uh, on behalf of God, when I see the mark upon your doorframe, I will pass over you. But they hired all these religious leaders, uh, so they hired um, rabbis and pastors and biblical scholars to be consultants for the movie, and they all came back to Steven Spielberg and said, my man, you have to change that. Probably not in those exact words. But they came back to him and they said, you can't change the language here. It's too central to what's being said. And so after all of this debate, they changed the script from when I see the mark to when I see the blood on the doorpost. So what is it about blood that is so central to what happens here? Well, I've used this word before, but in Scripture, there's very often synecdotal use of language, and I realize that nobody just throws around the word synecdotal because I'm a huge nerd and I just think about these things all the time. So when you talk about synecdotal use of language, you're using a part of an object to denote the whole of it. So the, the go-to example here is if you get a new car and say, check out my wheels, theoretically, you want them to look at the whole car. I mean, maybe you have like some dope rims and you actually do want them to look at your wheels, but generally speaking, you want them to look at the whole car. If somebody asks you to be on the lookout for something and you say, I'll keep an eye out for it, you don't take the spoon to your eye afterwards and pop it out. Instead, saying, I'll keep an eye out for it is a way of saying my whole being will be alert to looking for the thing that you've asked me to look for. Much in the same way, it's not just the fact that the lamb blood. It's not just the blood itself. It's that the blood stands for the passing of a life. It's that the blood stands for the fact that somebody in that household has already died. And make no mistake, it is a member of the household of the people of Israel that will die on their behalf. God is very careful. He says, take this lamb, bring it into your home for 14 days before you kill it, which means that the kids would have played with it It would have slept in the same room as them. It would have integrated itself and become a part of the family and so identified with them that it was as though one of them had died. 
And yet in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God takes on the fullness of our humanity. He identifies with us in every conceivable way. He shares in our suffering and in our sorrow so that by his death, the judgment of God might pass over us because he has become one of us in every way. So make no mistake, when the Passover takes place, there is a body in every single house in Egypt. In the house of the Egyptians, it's the body of the firstborn son. And in the house of the people of Israel, it is the body of the spotless lamb who has died in their place so that they might live and the judgment of God might pass over them. During the season of Easter, Christians celebrate this holiday, Palm Sunday. We remember what took place on the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the crucifixion. And if you've grown up in church, you've seen the felt board diagrams. There's probably a veggie tales about it. Um, but essentially, Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people are so excited about this miracle worker from Nazareth entering their city that they snap the palm branches off of the trees surrounding Jerusalem, and they lay them at his feet. This would have been a sign of national identity. And they keep crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's an irony in this scene that couldn't be more incredible. Because it was on this day, the Sunday before Passover, as this event in Exodus 12 was remembered, in Jesus' day that the Passover lambs were brought into Jerusalem to be sacrificed. And the people of Israel are crying out, Hosanna, which is an ancient phrase that means, save us. And they're expecting to be delivered from Roman rule. Jesus has come to save them from something greater. So imagine this picture, that the very Passover Lamb of God enters into the city of Jerusalem as his people cry out, save us. And so... He does. Like us in every way, identifying us, identifying with us in all things except sin. He dies on our behalf so that the judgment of God will pass over us. The Passover is not just an interesting episode of Israel's history and its relationships with Egypt. It is a shadow cast by the fullness of the person and work of Jesus. And in these pages of scripture, in this final plague of judgment, we are invited to see a God who delivers his people and at the same time to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy to come into your presence. We do not deserve for your judgment to pass over us in our own abilities. And yet, you have provided the lamb. And for all of us who are marked by the blood of Christ, we can approach you boldly. God, I pray that you would remind us of the earth-shattering cost of being able to call you Father. 
that the Son had to become like us in every way to be offered up to the death that we deserve so that we might approach you with boldness. Holy Spirit, convict us of the ways that we've taken this for granted. Point our hearts towards Easter, towards the finished work of Jesus, that we might approach this season with greater zeal and thankfulness and gratitude, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a Christian, we would invite you now to take communion so long as you're walking in repentance and you're in right standing with the people in this room or the members of the church that you're a part of. Uh, If you're not a Christian, but you have questions or want to talk about something, I would love to do that. I'll be in the back. So the next few minutes are yours as we prepare to take communion, examine